Okay. Whoa. Hey, if you don't have a handout yet, if you will pick one up there at the music stands on the back, you'll want that for this evening. I hope you're all doing well. Glad to see you back tonight. And so we are on week four. There's a typo on your handout. We didn't catch it after everything was printed. It says week three, but it's actually week four. So I know we're talking about time last week and trying to kind of stretch our minds, understanding time. We're not in week three still. We are on week four tonight on the fourth attribute of God. I don't know about you. My mind was hurting last week trying to think about God being eternal and being outside of time and not his being not having a succession of moments and that's okay that's good for us to have our minds hurt a little bit on those things and so as we think about that i want to read you a quote from charles spurgeon there on the top of your handout i came across this one this week and it just seemed really fitting in light of what we were talking about last week and we're going to talk about tonight as well if you're not familiar with charles spurgeon he was probably one of the greatest preachers who ever lived probably since the time of paul he was in 1800s he was a preacher in london and just incredible man of God with an incredible ministry back then. His people still read his writings, his devotionals even today. But here's what Spurgeon said about this topic. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-contentment and go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with a thought, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. And so that's good for us because we're we're not studying just a field that we can understand from human logic. We are studying God. And we're studying God and his greatness. And our little tiny finite minds are trying to understand who infinite God is. And it's okay if we come away scratching our heads a little bit going, I'm having trouble getting my mind around it. Friends, if we could explain everything about God, he would be a God of our own imagination. We're serving a God who's so great, we have trouble sometimes understanding and even explaining it all. With that said, there's another guy I want to read you a quote from here. His name is John Todd. He was a pastor in the U.S. back in the 1800s, and this is what he said. He said, and we shall find the more we think about God, the more we shall be lost in wonder. The more we think about God, the more we should be lost in wonder. And wonder. And friends, that's our goal in this. Our goal is not to come away from each of these attributes being like, check, I got this one down. Our goal in this is to look at these attributes and to come away lost in wonder at how magnificent, glorious, great, splendid, magnificent God is, and to, and to be in awe and to be in worship of Him. <clears throat> the same guy, John Todd, records a story about one time there was a king. He doesn't tell where it was, so I don't even know if it's a real story or a parable. But he records the story of this king. And the king, who was not a believer, found a learned man, a wise man in his kingdom, and said, Tell me, sir, who is God? And so this wise man said, Well, let me have a day to think of my answer, and I'll get back to you on that. So the king granted him the day, you know, reprieve on that. Goes to the king the next day, and the king says, So who is God? And the the wise man says, King, oh king, I need two days to give you an answer. Grant me just two more days. So he takes his two days, comes back two days later. The king says, what's your answer? Who is God? He says, oh, but king, just grant me four days, and I'll come back with an answer. So the king gives him four days. He comes back and forth. He says, oh, king, just grant me eight days. Then 16, and he just keeps going. So finally the king says, why do you keep asking for more and more? And his answer is, because the more I study about who God is, the more I realize I don't know who he is. And this is part of what we're dealing with as we get into the attributes of God. We're getting lost in the wonder of who he is is. And so it's okay if we come away with questions. We're not trying to fit God in our box. We're trying to know God for who we, he is. And this should lead us to what Psalm 33, 8 says there, that all the earth fear the Lord, but all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
And that's my prayer for you, my prayer for me as we're going through this study, is it's not just leading to knowledge for knowledge's sake, it's leading us to stand in awe of who God is and his greatness, that we might worship him, that we might serve him, that we might know him. Now, just a quick review, just to remind us of where we're at. We're talking about the attributes. So if you want to go to page two, we're talking about the attributes. These are the characteristics of God. I'm not going to redefine it for you. You've seen that definition the last weeks. But attributes are describing God and his nature. They're what set him apart. They're what makes God worthy of our worship and our service. It's basically what makes God, God. But I want to give us a reminder here to remember that we are not trying to project our attributes onto God. We're seeking as best we can with our limited, finite minds to describe God as he has chosen to reveal himself to us in Scripture. That's why we did our study earlier this year on how to understand the Bible first, because our goal is not to try to figure out how to put human characteristics on God so we can understand God. Our goal is to try to see how has God chosen in his providence to reveal himself to us, and that's what we are seeking in this. And that key word there is revelation. We are looking at what God has revealed about himself from beginning of Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation. As we seek to do that, it's a subject so vast, all we are left to do is to try to categorize it in some way, to try to describe him in some systematized fashion, because he's so big and so vast. And so we come to this way of trying to, to describe God with his attributes, his characteristics. We've seen three so far. We saw, and you see it there on your handout, the unity of God. That is that the God is fully all these attributes all the time. God is not divided into parts. Attributes of God don't fight. God is not up in heaven with his mercy and his wrath fighting and who's going to win today, what moves he going to be in. No, God is fully all these attributes all of the time. That was his unity from three weeks back. And then two weeks ago, we looked at how God is independent. That is, God needs absolutely nothing in any way, shape, form, or fashion. God does not need his creation. God didn't make the world because he was lonely. God needed nothing, nor he can he need anything. He's totally independent. And then last week, what hurt my brain a good bit was God is eternal, that God is outside of time, he's not bound by time, he doesn't even have a succession of moments, yet he chooses to operate in time for his purposes. So that leads us today to the topic of God's attribute, that God is spirit. Sometimes people describe this as God's spirituality, but it's the idea that God is a spirit. This is dealing with the question, what is God made of? So if you want a more simple question, what is God made of? Some people start wrestling that, well, maybe God is energy. Well, no, God's not energy because God made energy. Well, maybe God is some type of matter. Well, no, God made matter. So what is God? What is God made of? Well, God is made of nothing. God is just made of God. God is just he is. There's not something we can describe of that. So how do we describe the fact that God is a spirit, that God is <clears throat> his spirituality and his attributes here? Several people make, and I try to give you several definitions each week because we all struggle to get our minds around who God is in these things. We'll start with James Pettigrew Boyce. He was actually one of the founders of Southern Seminary in Louisville where I did my, my graduate studies. So this is going back a long time ago to Southern's founding. Here's what James Pettigrew Boyce said. And he's talking about God's spirituality. He says, when he says that God is spirit, he's saying not only that God has a spiritual nature, but that he is a pure spirit without outward form or material organization. So it's not that God just has or possesses spiritual nature. He is purely spirit. He's 100% spirit. He has no outward form and he has no material organization. So now we try to let our minds hurt on that one a little bit. Herman Bavink, you've seen me quote a good bit some, Dutch Reformed theologian, he said this, God is a substance distinct from the universe, immaterial, invisible to human eyes, and without composition or extension. Or how about this one? Wayne Greedham is one of my favorites. God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily sense, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. So I usually like most of Greenham's definition. I like most of his definition here, that God is a spirit. He is not made of matter. He has no parts, dimensions. 
He's more excellent than any other kind of existence. I get a little bit uncomfortable with this part. He's unable to be perceived by our bodily senses. And I get what Gruden's trying to go with this. Like, we can't physically see God with our eyes. God is spirit. But yet God in his providence can choose to reveal himself and we can experience him. So I get a little bit uncomfortable with this phrasing there, but I think I get where he's going at with that. All that to say, the other term that's popularly used to describe God's spirituality, the fact that God's attribute of being a spirit, is sometimes called his invisibility. His invisibility. You can't see him. He's invisible. <clears throat> now, like last week, there was different terms for things. And I mentioned last week that we could call it God's eternality, or we could say that God was timeless. And both terms are accurate. Like I mentioned last week, I prefer the fact that God is eternal because it tells us more of who he is than what he's not. Same thing here. There's nothing wrong with the term that God is invisible. It's a term you actually find in Scripture. But I prefer the fact to speak of God's spirituality, God is a spirit, because it tells us more of who he is than what he is not in these things. The one verse that first comes to mind on this, to where we see this in Scripture, is John chapter 4, verse 24. The context is Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, talking about where true worship happens, and he tells her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And he says God is spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Godhead, that God himself is spirit. He is spiritual. He is invisible in his nature. Now, what in the world does this mean? Number one, this means that God is immaterial. Immaterial means no material. That means God is made of nothing. Again, God is just God. He doesn't have matter. He doesn't have substance form like things. God is made of nothing. He just is. And that's been the teaching of the church throughout all of church history. Where do we see this idea that spirit is immaterial, that spirit is not matter? Well, you go to Isaiah chapter 31, 3, and you see a contrast here. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the implication you draw from what Isaiah is saying here is if you have spirit... Or if you're spirit and 100% spirit, you don't have flesh. So it's immaterial. Likewise, Jesus is talking in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, and he says, For does a spirit not have flesh and bones as you see that I have? And the whole point of saying is a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Well, what, is, what do we do with this now? Jesus is God. God is immaterial, but Jesus has a body here. Hold that thought. We're coming back to that one before we get done tonight, okay? So God is immaterial. Spirit does not have flesh and bones. Or Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, that God is immaterial. And friends, when we think of material, we think of like carpet and chairs and walls and bodies and stuff we can see. When we think of immaterial, we usually go to things like the wind. We can't see it, but we know it's there. We think of heat. We can feel it, but we, but we can't see it. But when we're talking about God being immaterial, that's something totally different than wind or heat. God is so extremely different in his being. There's really not even any analogy that can explain that to us. It's an existence far superior to anything we can experience or imagine. So God is immaterial. He has no form, so to speak, in that. Number two, then, that means God has no limitations. Now, think back to what we said the very first week, the unity of God, that God is fully all the attributes all the time. With that, we said all the attributes explain all the other attributes. They're all interconnected, and so you make sense of them by understanding them all in their totality. So let's try to connect this together. So if God is spirit, if, he has, if he's immaterial, then that means time has no limits on God. So let's connect his spirituality and his timelessness from last week. And let me quote James Boyce here. He says, To have an omnipresent, we'll get to that next week, an eternal mode of existence is possible for a spiritual nature. Because spirit has not of necessity succession of time and specific limitation of location. But these of necessity belong to matter. It's of necessity that has a here and not an everywhere. Spirit alone can combine the two, the here and the everywhere. It is also of necessity that matter exists in time. We know that it exists now, 
that existed yesterday, that it may exist tomorrow. But with the eternal God, there can be no succession of time, and consequently, he can have no material nature, but must be purely spiritual. Have we got that one? <laughs> that, that basically, all these attributes fit together. So the fact that we saw that God is spirit today, that God does not have material form, it ties in the fact that he's able to be what we saw last week, outside of time and eternal. Friends, we're only able, objects can only be one place at one time. As much as we like to clone ourselves and be multiple places at multiple times to get a lot more done, right? We can't do that. We are bound because we are flesh and bone. We are material. We are bound to one place at one time. Material can't be in multiple places at the same time. God is spirit, therefore he can be everywhere. His omnipresence we'll get to next week. But also he can be everywhere at all times because he is eternal. The, the fact he's spiritual enables him to also be eternal. Like, and then the more simple way of saying that there is right under that quote on your handout. The only way God can be eternal is also to be a spirit. And then the next point, because God is spirit, nothing can limit him. This is the idea of what we talked about two weeks ago, that God is independent. Let me quote Boyce again. If God have body, he is capable of being influenced from without. For all matter is thus capable of being influenced or being moved, divided, added to, and diminished. But if thus capable of influence from without, he is not independent. Therefore, the independent God cannot be material. So again, we're seeing all these attributes fit together. The fact that God is independent, the fact that God is eternal, is all tied in the fact that God is spirit, that God does not have body as we have it. He's not bound to matter as we have it. That then leads to number three that we're going to go more in depth next week, but it's related to this because all the attributes are related. God cannot be considered in terms of space, in terms of location, if you will, on that. This is what we call God's omnipresence. This means because God is spirit, he's spiritual, he is everywhere all the time. He can be everywhere all the time. Look at this from Psalm 139, verse 7, 8. Psalm says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Friends, there is nowhere in the universe that God is not. We're going to talk more about that next week. How is that possible? Because God is a spirit. A spirit is not bound to place and time. God can be everywhere all the time. If you travel to Mars today, God is there. If you go to the depths of the ocean, God is there. If you go to another galaxy far, far away, God is there. And yet God is here also at the same time. Because God is spirit. God is able to be everywhere because he is spiritual. He is a spirit. But with that said, there's a clarification. No point of space can fully contain him. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? You catch that phrase? Heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. Though God is everywhere, he is so infinite, so great, he cannot be contained in any one place. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? Friends, you look at the vastness of this earth. You look at pictures from, the, from satellites of the vastness of our planet. We're like his footstool. He's that vast, that big. And he's able to be that way because he is a spirit. He's not confined to any one place. If you remember what I mentioned last week, we talked about the universe being the arena where he shows himself. God is a spirit. He's so vast, it takes the whole universe to display his greatness and how big he really is. And we're going to go more on to that next week. And the number four, just to point out, God has always existed this way. God is unchanging. Even before creation, this is how God was. Why? Because it's the most excellent way to be. That is just who God is. So that's kind of what we say. When we say that God is spirit, God is invisible, God is 
and material, what we're talking about is this idea that God is not made out of matter, that God has no limitations like we would have. God cannot even be considered in terms of space, and God has always been this way. Now, what are the implications for that for how he relates to us and who we are? Turn to page number four here on your handout. This means, first of all, that we cannot see God. And the scripture is clear. There's so many more. I just gave us a selection of five pastors. We can find many, many more. Because God is a spirit, we cannot see God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Why? Because God is a spirit. He chose to reveal himself through the fire, but that was not God. That was God revealing himself through the fire. You saw no form of God there. Job chapter 9, verse 11, Job says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. Or John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So how many people have seen God according to that first phrase? Some, a few, the most religious? No one. I mean, that's, in fact, there, no one has seen God. Who's the only one who's seen God according to that? Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, wait, if God is immaterial, Jesus has a body when he came to earth, what do we do with that? Hold that thought, we're still coming to that one again. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, here it is, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why I'm not going to get too hung up on whether or not we want to use the word invisible or spiritual because scripture uses the term invisible. The king of the ages is invisible to our sight. First Timothy 6.16, 6, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immorality, immortality, what's wrong word, sorry, He'll, they changed it there, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen, but not just no one has ever seen, like we saw in John 18, but no one can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So God is in an unapproachable light. No one has seen him. And in that important phrase, no one can see him. Why? Because he's a spirit. We don't see a spirit with our eyes. In light of that, not only the reality is we cannot see God, but number two, it is a serious sin to try to create an image or a likeness of God. It is a serious sin to try to create an image or a likeness of God. Why? We are not allowed to think of God as being as similar to anything else in all of creation. So go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5 here. Ten Commandments, you're familiar with this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now we're going to get to that in October, so we work through the attributes of God, we'll get to God's jealousy. So hold on to the thought of jealousy. That's coming, but that'll be October before we get to that attribute on that. But notice this. God does not allow us to make carved images or, or any likeness of anything to try to represent him. This is idolatry. We're not allowed to do it. It is a sin that he forbids. But not only is it a sin, it is foolishness in this. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, it was not just sin, it's folly to try to worship something we can see because God is spirit. God is invisible on this. Friends, to think of God in terms of anything he has made misrepresents him. To think of God in terms of anything he has made limits him. And to think of God in terms of anything he's made belittles him. So if we try to 
picture God as anything besides who he is as a spirit, we are belittling him, we're limiting him, and we're, we're misrepresenting him. There was a pastor in the 1800s trying to explain this to his congregation. And he said, imagine someone makes a, a very rough, like, almost like scarecrow, a man of straw. And he holds him up and says, look, this looks just like your father. He said, you start to feel a bit of anger coming up inside of you. And that doesn't look like my father. That's a rough-looking straw man. It's like, well, what, how would we think about today? Imagine someone's outside, and they take mud, and they make this kind of ugly, we don't have enough snow here to make snowmen. So they make a mud man, right? Out in the yard, and this nasty-looking mud thing. Like, look, this looks just like your spouse. The anger we start feeling in our heart, that doesn't look like my wife or my husband. Or like, oh, that looks like your kid. No, you know, you start to feel that is such an inaccurate representation of my family. How dare you say that looks like my spouse? How much more so if we try to visualize God in any way other than he really is? When we try to think of God in terms of anything besides how he is, we misrepresent him, we limit him, and we belittle him in that. And God gets really angry when he's misrepresented. And you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 to read more about that, and we will get to that as we work through the attributes of God. So the reality of God being invisible is we cannot see him, but two, it's a serious sin to try to create an image or a likeness of him. Just side note, you hear people sometimes well-meaning talk about, you know, when I pray, I picture God as just sitting in the chair. He looks like my grandfather. You know, friends, that, that's making an image of God. God is a spirit. God doesn't look like your granddad sitting in a chair smoking a pipe ready to answer whatever prayer you have. That's not how he's chosen to reveal himself. That's not who he is. To think of God in terms of anything besides who he is misrepresents him, limits him, and belittles him. So hopefully some questions are rolling around in your mind. So I kind of put some of these thoughts together and some, but wait, questions are coming because what do we do with this attribute of God being invisible, being immaterial? Number one is if God is a spirit, why does, God, why does the Bible speak of God's face and his hands and his arms? We can go on and on. It talks about his wings and his eyes. And, you know, we actually sang a song tonight about seeing God. And we can think more about that in a minute in our small groups. But why does God speak of God as God's face, hands, and arms? Well, this is if you want the big English term. This is an anthropomorphism. Remember this term from high school, anyone? Anthropomorphism is attributing human characteristics to non-humans. And we do that in a lot of our kids' literature. You think of stories of like Pinocchio or other things. You know, we attribute non human characteristics to non-human things. But this is done in Scripture for a totally different reason. We're attributing human characteristics to God. It's figurative language, but it's to help us understand who he is and how he acts. So we talk about the face of God... God doesn't literally have a face. The back of God is not literally his back. The arm of God is not literally an arm. What are we doing here? What's the Bible doing? Think back to our previous study, How to Understand the Bible. That is figurative language. Figurative language is not designed to be interpreted literally. It's designed to help us understand the truth of it. So here's just three of what could be many, many examples in Scripture. First Psalm 51.9. Psalm 51.9. When David cries out, Hide your face from my sins. Does God the Father have a face? Well, no, he's a spirit. What does this mean? And this is figurative language to help us understand that when God forgives us, he doesn't look at our sin anymore. He looks aside from it. He sees it forgiven. He's hiding his face. It's an image for us to help us understand that God isn't looking upon our sin, and that gives us hope that he has forgiven us. Isaiah 53, 1. This is, you could also go to John 12 for this as well, which we'll get to in our Sunday morning series. Isaiah 53, 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But if God is immaterial... God is invisible. How does God have an arm? Well, the arm of the Lord is a figurative language for us to help us understand his power. Anytime you see in Scripture the arm of the Lord is representing God's actions, his power, that God is able to do what God wants to do. So whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Whom has the power of God been revealed to in this? Or Acts chapter 7, verse 56. 
great passage. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, there's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Well, I thought God the Father was a spirit. So how is he at the right hand? Well, the right hand is a symbol of delegated power and authority. So it's not that you literally see a hand in heaven with Jesus standing next to it. The hand is, re- is an image, is a figurative language to help us understand that Jesus has been given delegated authority from the Father, the very things we're talking about in the Gospel of John. You go on and on with the eyes of the Lord. One of my favorites is, is, is we're covered by his wings. Does God have wings? No. It's figurative language to help us understand his protection. So the first thing is, why does the Bible speak of God's face, hands, arms, body parts here? It's because it's trying to help us understand his actions, understand it as figurative language. So then number two then, if God is a spirit, does Jesus have a body? Okay? If God is a spirit and God is immaterial, and this is how God has always existed, does Jesus have a body? Well, let's answer that with some questions here. First of all, and I think you should know these, did Jesus ever have a beginning? No. Okay, yeah. We can speak really kind. Jesus did not have a beginning. He has always eternally been the Son of God. Think back to what Bruce Ware taught in the Trinity. God has always been triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. For all eternity, God has always been that way. But did Jesus always have a body? No. Jesus did not have a body. John 1.14, I should have put the text on there for you. This talking about the Word became flesh. Became. It happened. Jesus has always existed. Jesus has no beginning. But there was a beginning point when he took on human flesh. When he humbled himself, being obedient to the Father. When he came and he took on human flesh. So the incarnation, what we celebrate, Emmanuel, God with us at Christmas time, is when Jesus came and took on human flesh. When he became fully God and fully man, the mystery of the incarnation. So before then, before, before Christ came in human flesh, Jesus was there, but Jesus didn't have a body. He was immaterial. I love what John Piper says. Look at the quote there on that section. He says, Now when it says, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Which, by the way, he's quoting John 6.46. So if you want to know the reference, so that's John 6.46. Now when he, it says, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father, he means not with physical eyes. The Son of God didn't have physical eyes before the incarnation. And that is what he is contrasting our seeing with. Only the Son can see the Father with non-physical, unmediated, direct seeing. Now, try to get your mind around that. Non-physical, unmediated, direct seeing. We cannot see God spiritually the way the Son of God in unmediated directness can see him. A part of what I want you to see in that is there was a time when the Son of God didn't have physical eyes because Jesus has always existed as God, but before there was the incarnation, Jesus was God, fully God, but he hadn't taken on human flesh yet. But then the third question there under, if God is a spirit, does Jesus have a body? Does Jesus have a body now? Well, yes, he does. You look at what happens in Acts, he has a resurrected body, but there's something different. I mean, he's able to eat food with disciples, right? But he's able to appear in a room and then disappear and not walk through the door. How does that work? We don't know. He has a resurrection type of body. He has some type of physical form, but it's incredibly different than anything we have ever experienced. I mean, do you know how easy it'd be if you wanted to come to church and all of a sudden you just appeared in the room here and then you're like, well, time to go home. No cars need. Boom. You just show up. Yeah. We can't do that. It's a reality existence unlike anything we, we can experience. He is fully God and fully man, but he has a resurrection body now that he's still got a spirit, but yet he has taken on a type of flesh in some way here. So Jesus does have a body now and we will see him in bodily form when we get to heaven. So number three then is... What does it mean when it says in the Bible, we will see God? And we just sang about that during our praise time tonight, about seeing God. Well, how does that work? If God is invisible, if God doesn't have material forms, how can we really see God? Well, first look at several texts. There's many more I could give you in the scripture than these three. But Psalm chapter 17, verse 15. 
eyes from me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have, I have been fully known. Or 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him <coughs> as he is. So what does it mean to see God? If God is a spirit, if he's invisible, how can we see God when God is invisible? Well, there's several ways. Here's my understanding of it. You see it there in bold. Seeing God on that day, this is when we die and we see God face to face. Seeing God on that day means we will more fully than now understand the glory of God and we will see Jesus face to face. So when it talks about we see God, we will understand the glory of the triune God in ways that we don't understand now. I'm not saying we're fully understanding it, but we'll understand more of the glory of God than we do now. But we will see Jesus face to face. And Herman Bavick, this, this Dutch theologian, now this is, gets a little bit complicated here, but follow along. He says, The Bible does indeed teach that the blessed in heaven behold God, but it does not describe the nature of that vision, and it maintains God's invisibility everywhere. So did you catch that? So he's, he's affirming the fact that in heaven we will see God, we will behold God, but that the Bible never tells us what that vision is like, what it means to be able to see him, because Scripture maintains God's invisibility everywhere. So listen to what he says next. Every vision of God is therefore not a vision with respect to God's essence. <clears throat> Every vision of God presupposes a divine condescension, a revelation by means of which God descends to our level and makes himself known to us. Matthew eleven twenty seven retains its force in heaven. The vision of God in his essence implies man's deification, the wiping out of the line of demarcation that exists between the creature and the creator. Okay, it gets real philosophical there, doesn't it? But the point of this is that we will see God, but when it says we will see God, it doesn't mean we're going to see God the Father in bodily form or be able to visualize God the Holy Spirit. They are still spirits, okay? But we will see something there. And what is it? Whenever God shows himself to us, it is a condescension of God to our level, not us being raised to, to a level of God to where we can see him. If we could physically see God as a spirit, we would be, we would be God ourselves. That's basically what he's saying. We'd be like God. It's a, that last line, the vision of God in his essence. If we could actually see God fully for who he is would imply that we ourselves are deity also. But there is a line of demarcation that's not possible. Even in heaven, God is still invisible. When we see him face to face, we're speaking of seeing Jesus Face face. John Piper says something similar here. He says, We use the word see to mean that we finally understand and discern the beauty and glory of God after being blind to it. Like when we say, Oh, now I see. Okay, let me just stop there. How many times in conversations have you been talking to someone and you're just like, I don't get what they're saying? You know, my spouse is not making sense. My spouse is not making sense. Oh, now I see what you're saying. What do we mean by that? Not physically seeing, but we understand. A lot of what we're talking about in Scripture is seeing God is understanding more of who He is. So again, Piper says, we use the word see to mean that we finally understand and discern the beauty and the glory of God after being blind to it. Like we say, oh, now I see. And the second way is that in the narrative of the Bible, we see the glory of God, and finally we will see him face to face through Christ by seeing Christ. <clears throat> so we see God by seeing Jesus. In 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So what does it mean when it says in the Bible, we will see God doesn't mean we'll be able to see with physical eyes the Father or the Holy Spirit. We will understand more of God's greatness and glory, but we will see Jesus who has a resurrected body. And that is one of the hopes and things we long for, seeing Jesus 
face to face. But then question number four there is, are we also spiritual? Well, yes, but not in the same way. And so the reason I've got that question there for you is a lot of theologians classify the invisibility of God as a communicable attribute, an attribute of God that he shares with his people. I've kind of broken from some of those guys that are really fun. I've pushed this up here with these, these attributes like God being timeless last week, God being eternal, or God being independent. These are what we call incommunicable attributes of God he does not share. Why? Because God's invisibility is so radically different than anything we can experience, understand, know in a practical way in this. But in some sense, I get why they classify this. Do we have a spirit? Yes. Genesis chapter 1, when we are made in the image of God, that is part. That's not, there's a lot that goes into what it means to be made in the image of God. But being made in the image of God, part of the fact is that we have a spirit. Animals don't have spirits. That's one thing that distinguishes us from the rest of creation. So we have a spirit. Friends, when we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. When someone passes away, you don't see their spirit lifting up out of the coffin and going up to heaven. Why? Because that spirit is invisible, just as God is invisible. When Carmen passes, families gathered around him. They don't watch his spirit depart and wave at them as he, as he goes to heaven. They know it's real. The Bible tells us it's real. We know it's real, but we don't see it. Our spiritual part of us is invisible like it is with God, but our spiritual part is just one part of us. We have a body. We have a spirit. We have a soul. You know, I hold that we have three parts. Not all theologians agree. Some say soul, spirit, same thing, but... That's a subject for a whole other day, whether or not soul, spirit is one, same, or different. We can have a whole fun Wednesday night sometime when if we're tripartite, body, soul, and spirit, or if we're bipartite, body, soul, spirit being one. Again, that's a discussion for another day. But regardless, we have a part of us that's physical. We have a part of us that's not physical on that. God is 100% spirit. He's not sharing a part spiritual being with a part physical being in his essence. He is spirit, so this is where it's so different than us. And so what we, while we do have a spiritual nature, it only in a tiny way reflects God in this. It's very, very different. Now, with that said, I want to, before we go to our discussion questions, I want to read you a quote, and this will tie into something that we'll talk about in our discussion time. There's a lady named Rosemary Jensen who used to be one of the directors of Bible Study Fellowship, if, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible Study Fellowship ministry. She has an incredible prayer in light of this attribute because when we think about the fact being God, invi- God being invisible, that we can't see him, what does that do? She has this prayer she prays in light. She says, forgive me, Lord, for doubting your presence just because I cannot see you. I too often do what I want, not considering you because you are invisible to my human eyes. I have not even appreciated that you are a parent in creation, especially in your written word. I repent and will look to you in everything. Friends, I wonder how often because of the fact that God is spirit, that God is invisible, do we forget that he is here? Because he is spirit. He's everywhere. There's nowhere we can run to escape his presence. Which is, we want to have some fun thinking about this if you have trouble sleeping the nights to come. We're going to get to this with God's omnipresence next week. If God is everywhere and there's nowhere God's presence is not, is hell the absence of God or is hell the presence of God still there? We're going to get to that one next week. You want to be chewing on that one over the next seven days. So anyway, but God is everywhere. But how can we forget that? And how would our lives be different if we remember that because God is spirit, he is everywhere? So turn to the back page. Here are some of the discussion questions that we break up into groups. Hey, Greg. everybody hear that so what do you do with this kind of glory when god has revealed himself to, to people on that that would be ultimately where i'd tie back into the, this description 
of him doing a condescension, back to Herman Bavink's quote on page 5. Um, and that quote, I guess, third line into it, he says, Every vision of God presupposes a divine condescension, a revelation by means of which God descends to our level and makes himself known to us. So, so, so God do, can descend and make himself known to us, and we can see some of the Shekinah glory, but we're not seeing God's essence. We're not seeing the fullness of God's essence. We're not seeing God himself. We're seeing a glory radiating from him. We're seeing, you know, that, that type of thing. So I would tie that in to being this idea of God condescending himself to make some, re- some revelation to show us that we can see with our eyes that he is there, he is real, but we're not seeing the very fullness of the essence of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, especially pre- pre-incarnation himself. Is... <laughs> That's a great question, Greg. So, so... <laughs> I, see Dave, I see the wheels of Dave's brain turning also on this. So yeah, so this raises lots of good questions for us because... If God is, because the church has held through all of church history, from the earliest days of the church, that God is immaterial, not made of matter, and invisible. So, so how, does, how do we affirm that as truth, but also yet at the same time get our minds around the fact that God does reveal himself in this kind of glory, that Jesus did come as a man, as fully God, fully man, that there is a resurrection body of Jesus now, yet God is still invisible and material. So this, again, takes us back to our brains hurting a little bit, and that's good. Like the Spurgeon quote said on this, and we can look at other subjects and go, Behold, I am wise. When we come to trying to wrestle with these things, we come away with, I am but of yesterday, and I know nothing. And so this leads us to, under- to have trouble with our little finite minds understanding how infinite God works. So page six here. I want you to reread the quotes on the front page, that Spurgeon quote and that Todd quote. And then I want you to think about these questions. Do you agree that the more we study about God the more we will be lost in wonder. So the more we study about God, does that lead to us being more lost in wonder? And the second, should we expect the increased study of God to always result in more clarity in our thinking? Or can the study of God lead us to sometimes be scratching our heads even more when we get done with it? So should we expect the increased study of God to always result in more clarity in our thinking? Number two, are we prone to doubt God's presence because we cannot see him? Are there things we would have done differently today if we remember that God was there. Number three, how does God's spirituality affect how we pray? So how does God's invisibility affect how we pray? Should we try to picture God when we pray? If so, how? If not, how do we think about God when we pray to him? Number four, how does God's existence as a spirit help us in our time of trials? Number five, I thought we'd have fun with this question here. What Christian songs do you know that remind us of this truth that God is a spirit who is immaterial and invisible? I may start throwing this one in some some of our things, because we want to make sure what we sing, what we're listening to about God is describing him. So can you, can you think of songs that deal with this attribute of God's nature? Um, I can think of one so far. I'm still trying to think, see what else you come up with. And then read First John chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This is an interesting text that, where John affirms the fact that God is invisible, yet also calls us to love one another. So why is John going to go back and forth between God is invisible, love one another? What is the connection there in that? So basically, how does God's invisibility affect how we treat one another and community. So again, these are some tough questions to wrestle with. It's a tough subject. That, that, trust me, as we get further along, I think the subject matters can get a little bit easier. We're getting into the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. We're going to get into the fact that God is unchangeable, but that brings a whole sort of set of questions we're going to wrestle with. This, when Scripture says this, God changes mind, how is God unchangeable, yet God changes mind? We're going to wrestle with that in the weeks to come as well. But then we're going to start getting into what, what we could call the communicable attributes of God, the attributes he shares and those tend to be ones that are a little bit clearer in our thinking. God is love. God is just. God is merciful. God is wrathful. You know, those we tend to have a little bit easier time getting our minds around than these that we would call the incommunicable attributes 
of God. So let's divide up into groups. I see Dave right over here. I see CJ up here. I see Greg right over here. And do we need to, do we have a fourth group we want to form around? Um, John, yeah, how about let's get a fourth group around back there with you. And I think that'll be good if we break up into those four groups. Now, if you have questions, I'll be glad to float around and see if you have specific questions. So have fun wrestling with these.